All right. It's, uh, it's been three weeks that you guys have let me be up here, and nobody's thrown any food yet. Uh, no big cane has come from the side to pull me off stage. You guys have been uh, gracious to me in letting me like play preacher for the past month. So thanks for being patient, sticking around uh, while Evan's been away. I know all of us are eager for him to be back and be back up here. In the meantime, we've been continuing through the book of Judges. And if we haven't learned anything yet from the book of Judges, it's that sometimes you have to put up with imitation leaders and you have to cry out to God and eventually he hears you and he brings a rescuer. And listen, Evan's coming back next week, so your prayers will be answered. But uh, in all seriousness, this month I've been doing my best, not just to tell you every week like some catchy one-liners to take with you out of service, but uh, instead uh, I've tried to teach you some biblical themes and some intentional plot points that God thought were important enough uh, that he presents them in his scripture time and time again. And so every time I preach, it's my goal, it's one of my goals that you walk away not just knowing the Bible better, but also knowing how to read your Bibles better. And so, uh, so I, I hope that um, I've been doing uh, an okay job at that. And I hope that um, you can recognize that and benefit from that, you and your families. And because uh, and, I think that's something that will benefit all of us and God's people as we move into the future, every time we enter scripture, that we have these tools. And, and I think it's important because if you live by what God has said, spoken, and written for you, it doesn't guarantee a good life now, uh, but faith in the God of the Bible and adherence to his word does put you on a path towards eternal perfection in his kingdom later. And so... God's word doesn't guarantee a good life now, but it promises that perfected life um, to all of those who are willing to trust in him to get them there. And, and see, just knowing God's word, that's not the point. That's not everything. But, but reading his word rightly certainly does help you see him clearly. And, and so knowing God and putting your faith in God, that's what matters. And so this morning, before we get into a text, I want to give you guys a quick quiz to see how I'm doing so far with that. And so every week I've tried to show you some of those themes and ideas that repeat themselves time and time through scripture, but there's one in particular that Judges really tries um, to drive home. And so here's the quiz, and I'm actually expecting participation, okay? It's just a one-question quiz. All right, according to Judges, when we live life based upon what we see instead of what God says, inevitably, how does that go? Very good. I actually wrote that down in my notes to say very good because that's how confident I was in you guys. So yeah, so when we judge and live based upon what we see instead of what God has said, it inevitably and always, uh, it never goes well. And so this morning I want to look at this story of one man, really two, and one tribe whose families both forget who their God was and, and in the process forsake God's ways and try to forge their own past, what they thought success and, and a, a prosperous and perfect life would be. And, and so this morning, I want to look at the beginning of the end for the nation of Israel during this time in the book of Judges and show you how this morning's narrative teaches us what happens when we forget forsake and forgo God's plans and instead try to forge our own. Uh, because when we forget, forsake, and forgo God's plans to forge our own, we judge and live based upon what we see instead of what God has said. And as you guys know, that never goes well. And listen, sometimes those results are immediate and we see the effects right away, but other times it takes some generations. But either way, it affects 
generations. And so with all that out of the way, um, we can get into our text. I'm going to read again these first few verses because I think they're important in setting up everything else that we're going to talk about this morning. And so it says, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it into my ear. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave it to the silversmith. Uh, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained his sons, who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All right. So here's where our story begins. There's a man named Micah who lives in Ephraim. It's like southern to middle Israel, right above Judah, and he's introduced to us as he's returning roughly 30 pounds of silver, thousands of dollars worth of silver, to his mother because she cursed it. And so to avoid this curse, he returns the money, and then his mother responds by asking God to bless him. Now, I don't have any children. I also don't have thousands of dollars. But if I did, and it was stolen from me and stolen by my son, I really doubt that my first response would be to ask God to bless this child. And some of you may say, well, maybe she's just more gracious than you, and well, yes. Others of you will say, well, maybe she just knows God, but maybe she's closer to God, and so that's why her character just reflects this. And to that I say, probably or maybe not. Because after asking Yahweh to bless her son, she takes back this money that was stolen from her, and she says she dedicates it to God. And that all sounds really good so far. But then she, de- she dedicates it to God by rewarding her son with the money that he had stolen and taking 200 shekels of it to make for her son idols for him to worship. So this woman, so gracious, so thankful to God uh, that, he res- he, that she responds to this thief of a son with money and idols. And then in turn, this son builds a shrine and an ephod, which is like a religious garment. And he sets up this entire new system and he ordains his son um, as his priest to his family and to these household gods. And then this introduction ends with the line that we've heard before. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is certainly what we just saw happen. And so this mother had a pretty good heart. Like from what little we know, we know she believed in the God of her ancestors. She believed that he had the power to curse those who curse his people and bless those who bless them. She's not only forgiving of her son, but she rewards him immediately after he robs her. This is how she treats the offender So it sounds like a pretty kind, gracious, and generous lady, but then she does something so odd to take this money and create idols for her son to worship. And what's more, we immediately see how her actions affect a third generation. 
as her idol-worshiping son builds this temple to these gods and then ordains a son of his own as a priest to this god and to his family. And so her actions immediately have consequences, and those consequences aren't just on her children, but on her children's children, her grandchildren, three generations right here because of her actions. And listen, I doubt that many of us are going to have graven images, carved idols built specifically for our kids to worship. But if you, if you think that idol worship is gone today, um, you're mistaken. It just looks different. And so listen, I, I ask you guys questions. Have you noticed I like to ask you guys questions? And so, so here's my first question for this morning. As you listen this morning or you choose not to listen for the rest of the time, ask yourself this question. What are you making an idol in your life or in the lives of your children? When you look at your life right now, what are the things that you are worshiping or training your children to worship? And so maybe you've worked so hard to make good money so you can provide well for your family, but in order to do that, you're never home. Are you the person who's provided a comfortable home for your family with big vacations and nice cars and luxury hotels? And listen, all those are great things. If you got it, use it. But have you taught your kids or are you teaching your kids that that's what's important? Listen, if you raise children who can never be content in a smaller house or with a cheaper car or with a few less vacations, then be careful that you haven't built up this comfort and wealth and security as an idol for your children to worship. And maybe these things aren't a problem for you and maybe instead you see your kids all the time but actually you're a slave to their calendars and their extracurriculars and their sports. And again, listen, those are good things but be careful that you don't wake up one day realizing that something like youth athletics have taken hold of your lives in such a way uh, that's unhealthy or detrimental to your children and their future. And, and so it's okay if there's tournaments on the weekend, but it's a problem if there's a tournament every weekend. And so they never grow up experiencing or understanding the value that it is to be a part of a church family. So don't let these kind of activities become idols. And listen, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years and I have had conversations and I've watched time and time again. I've talked with parents and even children who have recognized and regretted the reality of that exact circumstance. And so I've talked with parents who look at the lives of their now grown children and, and they're not connected with the church, but they claim to have a faith and they say, man, I wish I made that a priority for them. Or I've talked with now adults or high schoolers who look at their own lives and mistakes they've made or, or relationships they wish they had or that they had lost and they say, man, my parents had me on three teams, three teams, four teams. I never got to experience these things. I wish I had these foundations to fall back on. And so, so these are, are things that we do. We build these idols but listen, maybe that's not your bag either, that your kids', kids calendars, but instead, and maybe even worse, maybe your idol is the church. And so parents, be careful of that too. 
See, maybe you believe that your kid has to be involved in every single thing that goes on, and so you force them to be a part of uh, every kid's ministry you can find. They go to every VBS you can get your kids to in the summer. They're part of um, uh, Liberty Youth, but they're also part of four different youth groups, and they go on every single mission trip you can send them on, whether they want to go or not, and you make sure that every day they do their devotional, whether they want to or not. And listen, all of those things can be really good things, but just be careful careful that you don't raise a child who looks at the church and either um, is embittered towards it or worse has learned to worship the church instead of the God that it's here to serve. And so listen, just to avoid some misunderstandings, um, especially when it comes to the church, these are all really good things. I certainly believe so. For the church, I plan most of the things. They're good things. But, but again, comfort and vacations and sports and extracurriculars and the church, good things. But when we forget that God is responsible for giving them to us all, they can replace him and become our household gods. And household gods can enslave and confuse generations of people. And we live in a world now where household gods have confused generations of people what household gods do when we worship them cause confusion for generations. So what household gods do you worship now or are you building in the lives of your children? So that's verse one through six. And as we continue, Micah is gonna be this character who comes up time and time again, but he's not actually the only man I want us to pay close attention to this morning. And, and actually, I think he serves more as a backdrop to the real focus of the story, which is another man and another tribe we get introduced to next. And so we're gonna pick up in verse seven. It says, now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. So Micah said to him, stay with me and be uh, to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as a priest. So how crazy is this story so far? O oh God of Israel, curse whoever stole thousands of dollars from me. Oh, it's my son? God bless my son. And to show you how much we love and worship you, I'm going to create new gods for my family to worship instead. And the son takes these gods and says, I'm going to create my own religious system with my own traditions. God, will you bless me while I clearly worship, not you? And then we're introduced to this, this Levite who lives um, south of Jerusalem. And, and you have to understand something about the Levites to understand his story. So first, if you are a descendant of Aaron, your job was to be a priest. But there were 48 cities that you were to be a priest in. 
And so God uh, didn't give the Levites one specific land. He gave them these 48 cities and put them in as priests there. And then every so often, as a Levitical priest, um, you also had a responsibility to serve for a season in the tabernacle or the temple. And at that time, it was in Shechem, which is kind of in central Israel. And, and so if you were a Levite from another family, not of Aaron's family, but another, your responsibility was still to serve in the temple, just in a different capacity. And so here's this guy, not in one of those cities, traveling on his own schedule as this like maverick, mercenary kind of priest to whoever will pay him. That's our guy. And so then our boy Micah meets this guy and knows he's a Levite and knows the Levites are the priests of God's people. So he, he says, live with me and I'll pay you well to be my priest because then definitely God must bless me if I have one of his priests working for me. And so, so then uh, while I... While he totally disregards and ignores the worship of the true God for the worship of these other gods using one of God's priests, then on top of all of that, this priest, instead of correcting Micah, obliges and becomes like part of this backwards family. And so this week I had to give the title a sermon, uh, this sermon a title because we do that here. And so as I'm reading this story, I'm thinking, man, all of this is just so topsy-turvy, so backwards, so upside down. So when, when Tim asked me for my title today, I called it Life in the Upside Down. And then he reminded me of Stranger Things and the Upside Down there. And like my response to that is like, yes, like that's what we're reading right here is this like this world in Israel, like this is God's promised land with his people and all they've done so far throughout this book and throughout their history is just slowly become the same people they're supposed to separate or push out of the land until just now everything is upside down. And so in verse one through six, like we find this mom who knows God's name but has forgotten who he is and it leads her to make some odd choices for someone who claims to call upon his name. And, and we see the generational consequences that she raises a son who not only steals from his mom but who also builds a temple and a priesthood in another God's name. And so this shows us what happens when we forget who our God is. And then in verse one through seven, we meet this priest who completely has forsaken the calling that God's given him to be his priest and his representative. Exactly so, this kind of forgetfulness doesn't happen. And, and so not only does this priest decide to ignore the calling that's been given to him, but he also is willing to be paid to continue to lead people away from Israel's God. And in so doing, allows others to follow this new path instead of the one true God's. And so that's chapter 17. Not only the people have forgotten who their God really is, but even the ones who should know God's priests decide to ignore and forsake and forgo God's ways to walk in their own. And so that leads us into chapter 18, which introduces an entire tribe of people by first reminding us that in those days there was no king in Israel. And it says, in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Okay, so one, they had an inheritance just south of Ephraim. And listen, it was sweet real estate, waterfront real estate, promised to them by God. They were just having trouble taking it. That's what uh, had not fallen to them means. 
Verse two, it says, so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtiel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And then when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of this young Levite who probably traveled through there too. And so they, they begin to talk with him and, and, and they say, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? So listen, they know he doesn't belong. So they're like, bro, what are you doing here? Like, did somebody take you here? Were you captured? What's your business? And so this is what he says. This is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God then, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey in which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So, so the people say, hey, I know that God gave us a land, but we don't want that land. It's too hard for us to take. So we're gonna go find and then take a new land for ourselves. Do you think that God will bless us? We don't like what God promised us. Do you think he'll bless us? Will we go take from someone else what we think looks better? And so this, this maverick priest goes, oh yeah, for sure. I spoke to God. I talked to him all the time. He talks to me. We're good. And he said, he's your boy and he's got your back. I think that's how he thinks God talks. And so this is like, this is like so twisted and so bananas. Yet at the same time, we do this all the time, don't we? And sometimes it's in small ways, like when we look at our house or our cars or our hot water and our air, air conditioners and we think to ourselves, oh, I wish this was bigger. Oh, this car is so old, I can't believe I'm still driving it. God, I've been trying to be such a good Christian. How come you haven't blessed me with more? Why do I have to work so hard for this? But other times it's in really big ways, man. And sometimes we're not just discontent with what God's given us, but sometimes we choose to go out there and take what we think we deserve. And, and we just assume that if we can get it, well, then it must have been God's will. He must have blessed us in that. And I've heard that lie time and time again. Well, it happened, so it must have been God's will. And what a lie that is. Don't believe the lie. God permits a lot to happen in this world because he's given us choice, but that doesn't mean he condones all the choices that we make. So don't think just because you asked and it happens means that God has blessed the outcome. Listen, he cares what we ask for and how we ask for it and how we obtain it. And so some of you are thinking, well, John 14, 13 says, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he will do that the Father may be glorified to the Son. So there. But my response to that is exactly, that's exactly right. Whatever you ask in his name. And so you have to know what that means. When you do something in someone else's name, that means that you represent them. So that means if you're asking for something in Jesus' name, you should be asking for something that Jesus himself would ask for. In other words, words uh, we have the work we have, the responsibility we have is to know our God to the extent that we can and to seek his will the best that we can so that we have to know him to know his will so that we ask that his will be done. That's what it means to ask in his name. Lord, we know you want this. Make it happen. I want that too. 
And that's the promise that he gives, that when we ask his will be done, his will will be done to the Father's glory. And so that's the prayer he's given us. But we don't always pray that prayer, and we don't always seek his will. We often seek our own. So, you know, I have a a friend um, that's close to me. I love them. But over the past few years, it seems like they've totally forgotten who God is, and they've chosen to forgo God's way, and they've tried to forge this path of their own, and here's what that looks like for them. So this, this friend of mine desperately wants a family, like the perfect family. They didn't have that growing up. They want that for themselves. They want to redeem their past. And so in their effort for this perfect family, what they did is they chose to get into a relationship with somebody who already had children from a past and a failed relationship. And that circumstance itself isn't necessarily the problem to enter into a relationship with somebody who has kids. The problem is that they loved the idea of this family more than the family itself. And, and so as that relationship progressed, eventually it failed too. And so in that they entered into a relationship they never should have been a part of. And when that relationship failed, before it was even officially over, they pursued and started dating someone else with children of their own despite the fact that both of them were still technically in previous marriages. And, and so as you fast forward, they began dating and they, they uh, moved in together and they had children of their own. And, and then they asked me to perform their wedding ceremony, which is like a really tough spot to be in. And so as I talk to them, they're telling me too about this church that they started going to and this small group that they're participating in and how even though their new partner isn't a Christian, they're willing to have those discussions and at least talk about God. And they're really hoping that their partner decides to follow Christ despite these obvious household gods that they're clearly worshiping and putting in place. And despite all those things, they want me to stand there as their family and tell them that God is blessing this path that they're on. But it's actually just so upside down. And so unlike the priest in the story, I didn't lie and say that God was behind them. I told them that I love them and that God loves them, but listen, this just isn't his way. And so this friend of mine is just like the Danites, like they've forgotten who God is and they've completely forsaken uh, his ways and, and they're choosing to forge this own path that they believe looks so good to them. But listen, there's ramifications when you live that way. And, and for my friend and their new spouse, they already experienced what happens when you do marriage your own way and it failed. But they're still choosing that path again despite knowing what God's told them. When we choose to forge a way for ourselves, our way tends to hurt people along the way. Because listen, when, when, when you're out there for yourself, you're not interested in the needs of others. And typically what looks good to you won't look good to them. And that's exactly what happens in the rest of our story. So listen to this in verse seven. Then the five men depart and came to Laish. And uh, it's in like northern, like the tip of Israel, if not just outside. Uh, And it says, they saw these people there, 
and how they lived in security after the manner of the uh, Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the, the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtiel, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise and let us go up again to them, for we have seen the land and behold, it's very good. And will we do nothing, do, do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. And as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given us into your hands a place where there is no lack of anything that's in the earth. So these spies come back with a really good report. The land looks good, but not only that, the people there are peaceful and secluded. We can take what's theirs with ease. And then comes the lie, therefore God must have been behind us because of how easily we can steal this land. So here's what happens. Uh, through the rest of this chapter, 600 men from this tribe of Dan arm themselves and they march on this peaceful tribe, but the spies tell their men about this this household that they came across with these gods of their own and a priest, so they choose to take a detour to his home to steal his gods. And when this priest asks what they're doing there, man, we were gracious to you, why are you stealing from us? They tell him to close his mouth and to come with them. And they say, why, why do you want to be one man's priest when you can be a whole tribe's? And so in verse 20, it says that the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the Danites. So this priest from Bethlehem who was trained his whole life in the ways of God and the temple chooses to forgo all of that for his own path. And when he meets someone who would pay him well he, and treat him like a son, he obliges and he becomes part of their family. But with something else that seemed better comes along, he betrays this new friend, this new family, and he steals from them the very thing that Micah once stole himself. And so to the tribe, uh, they then depart from there and then they put all of their little ones, their, their livestock at the front of their caravan knowing that they're most likely going to be pursued. And sure enough, they were. So Micah uh, recognizes what happens. He gathers his own army to pursue the Danites who had once considered, and, and this man, this from Levi, who he considered family. And so, so he goes after them, and then this is what happens in verse 23. It says, And then they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, What is the matter with you? And the people of Dan say to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. How depressing is that? And there's so much irony. This ephod and these idols were once things Micah stole himself because that's what seemed good to him until he learns of the curse his mother had placed on them. But when they were stolen from him, that, that seemed good. Uh, and when they were are stolen from him, sorry, that didn't seem good. And unlike his mother who chose to bless the thief, Micah raises an army to go after them. And then the Danites, they know what they did was wrong. That's why they move all of their possessions to the front of this caravan to protect it from the, their pursuers. 
to protect it from retaliation, and yet when presented with the victims of their crime, they deny any wrong, wrongdoing, and they ask, what's wrong with you, Micah? Why are you coming after us? And then there's Micah's response. You took the gods I made and the priest I ordained, and now I have nothing. When we forget who God is and we forgo his ways and we forge our own paths, we inevitably create gods of our own. But gods that we can make and gods that can be stolen from us will always fail and lead us astray. For Micah, the money and the idols and the priests seemed to create for him a pretty good life until one day they didn't. And when his gods were stripped away from him, all he could do was walk away depressed and defeated. So what gods have you created for yourself or your family? And what would happen if they were stripped away? What's the thing you love most that you would refuse to give up, that you'd be willing to build an army for or to fight with your life to keep or protect? Is it your faith in the one true God? Is it some political position? Is it your job? Is it some principle or some tradition? Maybe you've made some good things like your family or their activities or even the church, gods of their own. What is it that you've made into a god? Listen, if it can be taken away, that's no god at all. And so then our story ends with the people of Dan making it to their destination all the way in this northern tip of Israel, just on the border, if not outside of the land that God had promised to them, far away from the land that God dedicated to this tribe. And in verse 27, it says, but the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned their city with fire. And there was no deliverance because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it and they named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor who was born in Israel, but the name of the city was Laish at first. And then listen to this, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Did you catch that important detail? In these last few verses, the identity of this wayward priest was revealed. He's the grandson of Moses. So a priest from the town of Bethlehem is the priest who helps lead Israel astray. Not only does this, his identity reveal to us something about who he is, but also about when this took place. And so if we haven't taught you this yet, um, Judges, it seems to read chronologically, like if things are getting worse and worse, judge after judge, but but here we find out that this book isn't uh, necessarily chronological. In fact, the judges are regional authorities. And so it's likely that some of our stories that we've gone through had happened simultaneously or in a different order. Um, but what we find out here at the end of the book that this is actually happening right away. Like immediately after the people enter this land of promise, just two, three generations in, they're already so far from God that they're stealing from one another and they're taking from one another and they're abandoning what God had promised to them. 
And so here's what I want us to realize from that, that when we forget who God is or we forego his ways or we forge our own past, the consequences are immediate, whether we recognize it or not. And the fallout impacts generations. Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, sets up those gods that he stole from Micah and he builds an altar far away from God's temple far away from his tabernacle, far away from God's city, and then they remained there for generations. Stolen household gods become the gods for a whole people. And I think Jonathan's role here is significant because in him we find a priest born in Bethlehem who travels Israel finding places to rest wherever he can take it and throughout his life he gains a following and then a crowd and, it, and, and he takes them, um, to, he he's becomes their spiritual leader and from his position he points them to the worship of a God. And that story sounds familiar, only Jonathan leads the people to gods that were able to be taken and gods who could be forged or carved Micah, the Danites, and Jonathan all show us the consequences of putting our faith in the wrong places. That each shows us aspects of what happens when we forget who our God is or we forsake his ways and we seek to forge our own. In the book of Judges, we see leader after leader that reveals to us that we make bad judges. And in Jonathan, we find that we need better priests too. We gather here every Sunday as a people who believe in Yahweh, the Lord, as the one true God, and through him it's revealed that the greatest judge and the perfect priest is Jesus, who was also born in Bethlehem and also traveled as a teacher, but who didn't steal, create, or build false gods, but who was God, who didn't live his life based upon what seemed good to him, but who walked the path that God the Father had set before him. And although that path led to his death, it also brought him through the resurrection where he's now seated on the throne that was promised to him in the place that was promised to us. And so we're here in faith that God will continue to make good on his promises to those who put their faith in him, the one true God. He will be our God and we will be his people in the land of promise one day and forever. So this morning, do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that God's ways are always better? Or have you forgotten who he is? And have you chosen to forsake or forgo his ways to forge your own path towards what seems good to you? When we do that, there are consequences that affect generations. When we do that, we often harm others because in our selfishness, what seems good to us is often bad for others. And when we confuse our definitions of good for God's, we tend to turn his world upside down and very quickly it becomes a dark place. Next week, Evan's gonna be back and he's gonna share with us, I think probably one of the darkest stories of what people can be and what they can do, but worse, it's the people who are supposed to be God's who do it. So this morning, let's not forget who God is so that we can be better than those who have come before. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are, that we have your word, that time and time again we can enter into it. Lord, I pray that we would read your word well, that we would recognize what's there for us and the patterns that are there for us and the stories that are there so we can see ourselves and recognize the dangers and the temptations. Lord, let us remember who you are. Let us walk in your ways, not forging our own. Let us trust that what you say is good and put our faith in your eyes and perspective instead of our own because we are so often get it wrong and when we do it never goes well thank you for allowing us to be a part of your family and to worship you here this morning in your name we pray